Well, good morning. As you're grabbing a seat, I want to welcome you and thank you for being here today. We are continuing our series on God, Family, Hustle. Um, what we've done over the last few weeks is we have, uh, we have really dived into what the Word says about your family because here at this church, we believe in your family. We care about your family. We believe in investing into it because we know there's a lot of change that needs to happen in our world, but that happens first in the home. And so we're so glad that you're here. We're going to do the same. We're going to dive a little bit further today. Um, but I'm thankful to be able to chart a church like this. I feel have a, thankful to have a pastor who models what it means to invest and pour into your family. And actually him, uh, he and his wife, Jill, who, by the way, have you guys seen last week, Jill up here speaking? She did a phenomenal job. If you have not had a chance, you need to go watch that. She was open. She was honest, transparent. But man, she really spoke some truth. Like, I'm so thankful for him and her. But what they've done is they spent a few days with their family. And I'm just so glad that he models that, that he demonstrates that it's not enough just to say we believe and you should invest in your family, but he actually models that his family comes first, even before his job. So we're thankful for him. We're thankful for what they're doing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a couple of verses. You are, they are in your sermon notes. We're going to read from Numbers 13, and then we're also going to read from Joshua 6, and then we're going to jump into it. So Numbers chapter 13, verse 31 says, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, descendants of Anak. And these are giants that were believed to be supernatural, supernatural giants. That's who we saw there. And we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And then jump to Joshua chapter 6. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And when the trumpet sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and took the city. Will you join me in prayer? God, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for being such a great God. We thank you for the opportunity we have here today just to worship you, the opportunity we have today just to be light in dark places. And God, I just pray over the next few minutes that God, you would speak to our hearts and you would speak to our minds. That God, it wouldn't be my words, but God, it would be your words and your truth. That God, as we dive into the family today, that God, we know that you desire to see families prosper. You, to see, you desire to see families grow. You desire to see families develop and, and, and go beyond even where they currently are. And so, God, we pray over the next few moments that you would be with us, God. And as we walk away from here, we would be able not just to have heard a message, but we would be able to apply the truths and the principle that we learned. God, we thank you. We give you praise. We give you glory and honor in your name. Amen. So to get an idea of who all is in here, I'm going to ask a series of questions. The first few are very easy. The second couple, um, I would caution you in how you answer these. So the first few, all right, how many of you are married? Real easy. Woo, all right. All right, all right. How many of you are not married, but you wish you were married? It's all right. A few honest. Okay, all right. Nothing wrong with that. Hey, yeah, yeah, all right. Um, we're, we're taking pictures. We, we're going to set you up. That's actually the whole point of today. Um, how many of you one day plan on being married? Maybe you don't want to be today, but you plan on it. Okay, a few younger people. I don't want to be married now, but I would love to be married eventually. All right, so those are the easy ones. Now, here's a little bit more complex of a question. Now, if you're married, you will already know where I'm going with this. And so that's why I said I'm going to caution you on your response to this. If you're not married, then um, you have no idea what I'm talking about, but you will learn very soon. So how many of you have ever been in an argument with your spouse, but you didn't know it? All right, yeah, a little bit more cautious. Like, yeah, I mean, like, yeah. yeah, you know, like you've been in an argument and you did something wrong and you didn't even know you did anything wrong until it was too late. 
until you are so far beyond the line that you finally realize that I'm a dead man. Like, like is anybody ever, like, usually husbands more, we're just not as perceptive. Like, we don't realize that, man, I really screwed up on this. So what I found is that there was a time in my life where I thought I knew everything. Now, you guys remember that? Like, when you were young and that, man, there was nothing you could do that was wrong. Everything I touched turned to gold. I was so smart. I was so clever. I knew how I was going to do this, how I was going to do that. I was going to get married. My life was going to look like this. And I was going to be the best husband in the whole wide world because I'm Joseph. And then I got married. And I quickly realized that what I thought I knew in actuality was a whole lot of nothing. So I remember in my first few months of being married, me and my wife, what we had done is we got married. We moved to North Carolina. We started um, full-time jobs. I was in a full-time position at a church. She was full-time at a school, being a first-year teacher. And she was going through all the enjoyable learnings that first-year teachers go through. Teachers, like, amen. Like, the first year, it's a learning. Let's just call it that. It's a learning, right? All right. And I'm going through all of the joys of being in ministry and learning my way through this. And really, guys, i got to be honest. I'm just killing it as a husband. I mean, like, I, I, I don't think I could do anything better, really. I mean, I think I was doing it on point, everything here and everything there. And I remember specifically um, one Monday evening. And how many of you know nothing good ever happens on Monday? Like, if you start on a Monday, you know the story's going downhill immediately. So, so I remember a Monday evening. I came home from work, and I'd been there kind of late. And um, the thing about me, if you don't know, is I grew up in Texas. So in Texas, everything is bigger. But also in Texas, football is a life. Like, I know you guys kind of like football around here, and I know it's kind of a thing that you do. In Texas, football is everything that you do. You grow up from the moment you can pick up a football, you play. You go to every single high school game. You know all of the stats. You watch every game on TV. Football is a big deal. But now I'm married, and my wife's not from Texas. She's from Ohio that likes football. And so I remember coming home on a Monday evening, and I walked in the door. And you know you can feel a little bit of tension you know what I'm talking about? Like, you, you have learned now what that feels like. At that point, I didn't know what that was. So I walked down. I was like, things are a little different right now. I don't know what you did different around here, but I could just feel something different. So I remember saying, hey, how are you? And she was really short with me. And I'm very smart. I'm two months into this marriage. And I just assumed she's short with me that everything's okay. So I walk into the room, and I turn on Monday Night Football. And it was a good game. And I remember sitting in the room watching the, the game. And, and you guys... Like, you guys have all been there. Like, you know how, like, like, the pans just start clanging a little bit louder than usual? Like, for some odd reason, like, they're just dropping, it seems like, from five feet in the air. And all of a sudden, when the refrigerator door, like, shuts, the whole house shakes. Like, have you ever kind of been there? And so I remember asking this question because I'm really smart, and I know exactly what I'm supposed to do right now. I'm a good husband. I'm supposed to ask if everything's okay. So I sit there, and I'm watching the game, and I literally yell out, like, hey, is everything okay? And here was her response. And you guys know way more than I did in this moment, what this means. She said, I'm fine. So I assumed that that meant she was fine. I just assumed that everything was okay. Like there's nothing wrong. I didn't realize that I'm fine means you messed up. I am angry. I'm going to rip your face off in just a few minutes if you don't get your act together and get in here and deal with this. I just thought she was fine. So I kept watching TV. And I just kept going. And then you know what? It got louder and louder and louder. So you know what I did? Honest, honest to God. I turn the volume up. I can't hear the game. Woman, like, I'm like, what is going on? You said you were fine. Everything's good. I'm smart. And it just kept getting louder. So finally, I walk, I walk in. She's got, you know, dinner ready. It was something. She's a great cook. She loves doing stuff like that. And I'm terrible at it. So I remember walking in, and she asked me this question. 
And if you follow football, you will understand my response before you judge me, okay? So her question was this. Are you going to watch football every day? Before you judge me, here was my response. Of course not. There's no football on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Because there's not. There's football on Sunday and Monday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. But there's not on Tuesday and Wednesdays. And i got to tell you what. I really quickly realized that there was an argument and a problem going on that I was unaware of. But in the next few minutes, I can't repeat what she said because I'm a holy man and that's wrong. But like I'm... I'm just kidding. It really wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't bad. But, so we immediately had like our first argument in that moment. But I was completely unaware that there was any type of problem until it was almost too late. And we've all been there. We've all been in things that are problems. We've all had arguments. We've all had things go wrong that many times we're unaware of until it's almost too late. And I got to be honest with you guys. Right now, there's a battle that's going on that applies to every single person in this room. Every single person in this room, you are a part of a battle whether you realize it or not. And it's not a battle with your spouse. It's not a battle with your parents. It's not a battle with your boss. It's not a battle with a political party. It's not a battle with a different country. The battle that, we're all going, that we are all a part of, whether you realize it or not, is that there is a battle going on right now for the lives and the souls of the next generation. There is an absolute war that has taken place for them right now, and it affects every single one of us. But to see what we're really good at, what we're really good at, is we look at teenagers, we look at the next generation, and what we do is we focus so much on what they're not going through that we fail to see the things that they actually are going through. So maybe they didn't go through what you went through. Maybe their home is a whole lot better than your home. Maybe they didn't go through a great depression. Maybe they didn't go through some great war. Maybe they didn't have to go through all these things. But the fact is there are still actual realities that are affecting their life today and is literally going after their soul. So I know, I know I talk like this and people say, you're, you're just over-exaggerating a little bit. So I want to I share with you a few statistics because I love this type of stuff, but it really tells the story of what's going on with our next generation right now. Did you know the average age of a student being exposed to pornography is 11 years old? 11 years old, if you look at the stats, it's slowly gone down. It's gotten younger and younger and younger and younger that currently it's 11 years old. You know that 20 years ago, 5% of 13-year-olds were sexually active. 5% of 13-year-olds 20 years ago. You know how high it is today? It's 24%. One in four 13-year-olds are sexually active. How about this? Um, one in five students will be diagnosed with clinical depression before they reach the age of 18. One in five. How about this? 70% of teenage girls right now and almost every survey you look at will say, will say without a doubt that I am not good enough or there's just something that I don't quite add up to. 70%. Or the, the fifth one that, that really, really keeps me up at night, and I hope it keeps you up at night. You know the third leading cause of death among teenagers? Suicide. 11%. 11% of all deaths among teenagers are suicide. And yet... We want to act like there's not a battle going on. We want to act like there's not a war going on. You know, just 15 years ago, the stats on suicide were not where they are now. It has risen 70% in 15 years because there is an all-out battle going on. And I know I'm young, and I know I'm naive, and I know this is going to be really bold, but I am sick and tired of being told that's not my fight. 
I'm sick and tired of being told, well, that doesn't affect me. I don't have a student. I don't have a grandchild that's that age. I don't really hang out with students. The fact is God has called each and every one of us to make a difference in the world. And he says that he is no respecter of persons. But for some odd reason, we think that to become a person of respect, you have to reach a certain age. And what we're doing is we're looking right past every student that walks across our front door because they're not of age for us to truly care about unless they're blood, right? And I have to tell you that there is a fight that's going on and God is calling every single one of us to get in it. He's calling every single one of us to be a part of it. And so before I go any further, here's a question I want to ask you. What student has God placed in your life that he's calling you to bring change to? See, for some of you, it, it may literally be your child. Some of you, it may literally be your grandchild. Some of you, it, it may be a friend's child that for some reason you've always had a heart for. It may be a kid in school. It may be a kid in the neighborhood. It, if you're a student, it may be a friend of yours. Who is that student that God has placed on your heart? Because my prayer is that when we walk out of here, you'll take some tools and you will go and bring change to them. Because it starts with just one. So before we go any further, I want to ask you a, a, a question. And uh, I hope that you'll just be a little bit honest with this in terms of your childhood and your upbringing. But there were a lot of things that, were, that you do for your kids, right? I mean, you got to take care of them. You got to feed them. You got to clothe them, whether they want to be clothed or not. I have two-year-olds, all right? Like, whether they want to be clothed or not. Like, you have to clothe them. You have to put a home over them. You have to, you know, you have to buy them nice stuff. And you got to do all these different things. But how many of you, and you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you would be honest and just say, you know what? My parents did a whole lot of stuff for me that I just don't remember. I don't. I can tell you, I'm sure my parents bought me some dope shoes when I was a little kid that were like lit, lit up, you know, like I'm sure they were like really awesome and I was a big Superman fan. I'm sure I loved those things. And I bet I walked into school feeling like I was a boss, right? Like I'm sure it was awesome. I, I don't remember. I'm sure they bought me really nice clothes. I'm sure they, did, they drove me to a lot of practices. I'm sure they did a lot of things and those are all great. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But what happens is we get so busy. We get so consumed with life trying to balance marriage, trying to balance work, trying to balance being a parent, trying to be a balance of all of these extracurriculars, that what we get so focused on is just giving them what we, they need now. We give them what makes them happy now. We give them what we think will sustain them today. But in reality, one day they're going to walk away from our home and they're not going to walk away with any of that. They're not going to walk away with the cool shoes. They're not going to walk away with all the times you did this. They're going to walk away with the few moments in their life that's going to shape the adult that they are. So if when you think about the student in your life that God has laid on your heart, the next thing I want you to do if you're taking notes is I want you to say, if we stop thinking about what we're giving now and started thinking about what they'll take later, what is it that these students are going to walk away with later? And I want to talk about a few of those today. So there's four, four tools, I believe, for student development. And I take this right out of scripture because I believe the Bible is really alive. I believe that it is God-breathed. I believe that there's so much truth in this that if we would be more focused on the word than everything else that culture is telling us, we'd actually be able to learn a lot. So in this story, what we find is two different perspectives. In Numbers, if you don't know, there's this group of people called the Israelites. Their father was named Israel, so everybody after him are the Israelites. I asked if we could name all of uh, my daughters the Josephines, but Whitney said no. But apparently then, like, you could, like, name everybody. So everybody was Israelites. They were all after Israel. And they were enslaved in a country named Egypt for 430 years. And this guy named Moses comes in. God does these incredible things. He frees them. And they keep hearing about this land that was promised to them. 
this land, they called it the promised land because it was promised to them. And it's flowing with milk and honey, scripture says. And it's this amazing place. And it's everything you ever dreamed it would be. And so they travel all the way across the desert to this place called the promised land. And they get there and it's everything that they heard about. Scripture actually says that there were grapes so big that they had to stick it on a pole and two men had to carry these grapes out. Like that is how lush and incredible this place is. But then they send these 12 spies to look at the land and the scripture we read there in Numbers says very simply that when they came back, they said, we, we can't take this land. There are giants that live in this land. But I think the bigger problem is not that they even saw giants. The bigger problem was that they viewed themselves as grasshoppers. See, a lot of times the problem isn't what you're facing. The problem is how you view yourself in front of what you're facing. I think a lot of times when we look at our life, we look at problems ahead of us and we say, that is too big, that is too great. But really, it's not that that's too big or too great. It's that I'm too small and I'm too insignificant. And so these people who had this land promised to them viewed themselves as unable, too weak, insignificant to take the land that was promised to them. And so they were forfeited that right and they had to spend 40 years in a desert. 40 years wandering around this desert until that generation died. But then a new generation came up. And the new generation goes back to the exact same land. They look at the exact same people. They have the exact same problems. And they walk in, and they walk in with confidence. They don't walk in viewing themselves as grasshoppers. They walk in viewing themselves as warriors. And so the first battle that they're in, we read about, you've probably heard the story of Jericho. And I'm not going to get into all of that, but a city named Jericho is what they go. And they get there, and they're marching around this city for seven days. On the seventh day, they march around seven times, and they give a loud shout. And the walls come down, and they come rushing in, and they take the entire city just like that. And I read this, and I say, why did one generation look at the exact same circumstance and view themselves as too insignificant? The next generation is so bold that they will shout, they will march, they are not afraid, and they will run in as warriors and completely take the things that God promised them. Something happened in that 40-year span. And for us, when we think about our students, when we think about what it is God is calling us to do, he hasn't called us to teach them how to be grasshoppers. He's called us to teach them how to be warriors. So I want to look at some of the things that happened in their life. And if you're taking notes, the first tool that I believe that we can learn from their story is that they were coached. You see, your students, they need, to be, they need, to be, they need you to be a coach more than they need you to be a dictator or a friend. They need you to be a coach more than they need you to be a dictator or a friend. See, in this scripture, the first generation, they went through one battle, and it was just them protecting themselves. But the second generation went through several battles, and they weren't all just protecting themselves. There were battles that they actually went out, and they were on the offense, that they had a game plan, that they had to execute. And so when it came time to walk through the battle, they had already done it before. Why should they be afraid? But they were coached. And they had a process and an opportunity to get to it. I think if we're not careful, we go too far one direction or the other. We go too far one direction. And as parents, as leaders, as adults, as people in our students' lives, what we do is we become dictators. Well, we decide everything. We make every decision for them because we know what's right. They're going to make a bad decision. They're going to fail. They're going to do something wrong. I got to make every decision for them. I have to fix every problem for them. Oh, so-and-so said, what about you? Let me call their mom. Like that, like, like literally, I will take care of this. There is nothing that you can, like, I am always going to be the one who does all of this. But what happens whenever we're dictators is our students never grow up actually knowing how to deal with anything. It's because we've done every single thing for them. We didn't provide an environment for them, for them to actually practice and for them to succeed, but also for them to fail. 
Or we go too far the other way and we just want to be their friends. And I talk to, I, I, and I probably more than anything else, when I talk to parents of students, here's the thing that they want. I just want to be their friend. I just want them to like me. I just, I just want them to, to love me. I just want them to know that I'm here for them. And I understand the heart behind that. But if, if that's your reality, what you do is you're forfeiting the very calling that God's given on your life because he didn't call you to be their friend. He calls you to be their parent. He didn't call you to be their friend. He called you to be their leader. He didn't call you just to be their friend. He called you to be their teacher. He called you to be these things in their life. And if you're just so consumed with being their friend, you'll never actually put them in situations where they have to grow. You see, your students need a coach in their life. There's a day when they need you to be the massive disciplinary. There's a day when they need you to teach them like a teacher. But then there comes a day when they need you to be a coach. And I said I grew up in Texas. I had a lot of coaches. I grew up and I had a lot of football coaches. My favorite coach of all time, his name was Phil Castle. He was an awesome, awesome coach. The reason I think he was awesome was, one, because he was the athletic director, so he got lots of free stuff. Um, But also, I just thought he was a great, great coach. And here's the thing about the coach, is there were discipline, there were, there, were, there were expectations, there were rules. I could not be late to practice. I could not be disrespectful to a teacher. I had to do this, I had to do that. And you know, if I didn't do that, I got punished. He had this thing, and, and I love the name of it, I've never forgot it. He had this thing, he called it a do-right. He said, what's a do-right? If you do one, you will learn to do right, was his phrase. Like, if you cross the line, you will have to do a do-right, and you won't do it again. And I gotta be honest, I did one once or twice. And so like it, it'll literally teach you like, I don't, I don't ever want to do this again. But we would spend hours all week long practicing. He would walk me through what it is that I'm supposed to do. He would walk me through what could happen. He would walk me through how I should react. But when Friday night came, do you know who was on the field, Coach Castles or me? It was me. He was on the sideline. It was now my responsibility to execute the plan that he had given me. And if something was going wrong, if I couldn't quite get my mind around it at halftime, he would make adjustments, but I would still have to walk on the field because it was my responsibility. And then on Monday morning, we would watch film and we would learn. He would say, you did this well. You, what were you seeing here? Why did you not do this? Next time you do this. And you know what? Every week I got better. Every week I got better because of my coach. But you see, with your student, if you're not coaching them, they're not getting better. If you're not putting them in an environment where they have to actually go out and make the decision and allow them to possibly make a mistake, make a mistake because there's a parent, there's a loved one, there's an adult who will come beside them and coach them through that, they will never know how to deal with issues. I'm sick and tired of being told millennials don't know how to deal with issues. You're right, we don't because we never had to. It was always done for us. And now I talk to CEOs and I talk to leaders and they say millennials are not the best people in the world. And I agree. And they're saying, well, I have to teach them how to do all this stuff. I agree. What if we started allowing students to be in an environment where they could learn today? What if you let your student make a mistake at 16, at 17, at 18? Here's a few things. I'll roll through these real quick. How can you, what are some things you can coach your students on? You can coach them on finances. You know the number one thing the Bible talks about? God. The second thing that the Bible talks about the most over 800 times is finances. You could actually let your students practice finances. They could learn what a budget is. They can learn how to be good with money. They could learn how to write a check. They could learn what it means to have a bank account. They could learn what it means to have a J-O-B, right? Like, I mean, they can learn these things in a safe environment because one day they're going to have to do it. And I got to tell you, I got a lot of friends that when they got jobs and they got money, they didn't know what to do with it because they had never had to practice and had a coach beside them teach them how to do it. Or another thing you can teach them about is relationships. It's really easy to say, don't be with them, don't be with them. 
God, but how, I mean, come on. I mean, I was that teenager. You tell me not to do something, I'm going to do it even more. Don't cross this line? Okay. Don't cross this one? Okay. Like, we can't just tell them no. But you can teach them, you can coach them on how to have good relationships. What should they be looking for? What are things they should not be looking for? You can model it for them. If you want a young man to grow up knowing how to treat a woman, crazy idea. Why don't you practice with him treating his mother that way? It's this really astonishing thing that young men who don't treat their women with who don't treat their moms with respect, who don't do nice things for their mom, who don't help them, who don't get the door for them, who don't speak to them in kindness, all of a sudden we're surprised when they speak to young women like that. Put them in an environment where they have to practice and put consequences. If they speak bad to your wife, discipline them however you think. For me, I'm from Texas, and you don't like the discipline that I got, but I got disciplined if I didn't treat my mom a certain way. Another thing you can, you can coach them on, you can coach them on responsibility. You can coach them on what it means to have expectations and to not meet those expectations. What happens? Don't make their employer do it one day. Don't make their employer have to fire them because they didn't know what it meant to meet expectations. You show up on time. Teach them those things. Coach them through that. You can also coach them through how to guard their heart. If you just say, don't watch that movie and don't go there, they're going to watch the movie. I just got to tell you, they're going to watch it. They're going to find a way to get to it. If you teach them and coach them how to walk through these things, coach them why they shouldn't do that, and even allow them to do it at some point, but you walk through that process with them, they will be better prepared when they become an adult. So after coaching, I think the second thing that you can, the second tool that students need is they need honesty. They need to know the difference between a mistake and a failure. They need to hear honesty from you, but a clear, distinct, open form of honesty. In the 40 years that these Israelites were in the desert, they made a pretty big mistake. There was this country named Moab, and apparently the Moabite women were very attractive. Apparently they were really smooth talkers. Apparently they had curves in all the right ways. They danced in all the right ways. They said all the right things. Like apparently because they come into this country and they seduce all of the men to such a great extent that now the men are worshiping their gods just because they like the ladies. They made a pretty big mistake. And they got reprimanded and they got disciplined and they were told this is a mistake, but they never doubted that they were still God's chosen people. You did something wrong. We can't do this, but we are still chosen. We still have a purpose. We still have a promised land in front of us. And I think for a lot of teenagers, they don't know the difference between a mistake and a failure because a mistake is just viewed as an ultimate end-all be-all. And I think the reason most of them view a mistake as a failure is because they've never heard your mistakes. I know there's this crazy idea that we can't ever actually be honest with our students. But I tell you, if you sit down with them and really get down to what the heart of a couple of things of what they want, they just want honesty from you. They just want to hear the truth from you. They want to hear that you made mistakes, but that wasn't the end of your life, that you learned from that. And because of that, you are now better for it. They don't need to hear about the glory days. This blows my mind. Don't do the things I did, but man, they were fun. Man, woo, we did some crazy stuff in college. I remember the parties. I remember the late, man, I re, man, those were good times, but don't do that. Don't do that. Don't glorify your past, but you can talk openly and honestly through it with them about how you had to learn and how you had to grow so that they can see that it is possible to make a mistake, but that doesn't mean that it's an ultimate failure. The other thing you can do for your student is you can actually put them in environments where they have to put it into practice because they see it from you. You want to know one of the most powerful things you could do for your student? 
is you could put them in a room and you could bring your, your, your spouse in or you could bring somebody else who you've wronged and you could apologize publicly in front of your student. I was wrong when I did this. I should not have done this here, so I'm going to make it right. And just let them see it. Because they, not re- may, they may not remember the cool shoes that you buy them, but they remember that time they sat there and watched dad apologize to mom and how much it meant. They will remember how their dad was a man of honor, even whenever it was him looking like he was, even when it was him admitting he was wrong. There are ways that you can teach them how to be honest and model it for them, and then don't be surprised when they grow up and they actually know how to deal with conflict. Don't be surprised when they do something wrong and they say, I need to go make it right. I need to call them. I don't need to go tell everybody else how they're wrong. I need to make it right with them because we have been open and honest with them and they can see that there are mistakes that are allowed to happen, but I need to make it right. That doesn't make me a failure. The third thing that your students need is they need patience. Your relationship will fluctuate, but they need to know you still believe in them. How many of you have teenagers or you had teenagers at one point? Did they love you every single day? Were they like, you're the best mom ever, every day, every, every day? Or did it fluctuate? There, there, were, there were times, I'm trying not to look at my mother-in-law because she's sitting right beside my wife and I, she's doing one of these. So I'm like, I don't know what my wife did. But, so I'm sure she was awesome. But like, like I mean, like, they're, like students, your relationship with them is going to fluctuate. But at the end of the day, they still need to know that you believe in them, that you're patient with them. Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years 40 years. And you know what? They made mistakes. They complained a lot. They even talked about quitting. But God was patient through 40 years, and they always knew that he still believed in them. Your students have to know that you still believe in them because you are consistent with your time. I asked somebody, I said, how, do, how, do students, how do students spell love? And here's his response, T-I-M-E. Students spell love, time. See, the thing is, they need time, and that's the least we have to offer. I mean, man, I am busy. I am working. I am getting, uh, I'm making this money so that I can pay this for you. And I got to take you to practice and I got to go to church and I got to do this thing here and I got to do that thing here. I just don't have time. And they don't hear that you work 10 hours a day so that you can buy them and take, buy stuff for them and take care of them. What they hear is you don't have time for them, so you don't love them. What they hear from other adults in their life that just don't have time for them is I'm just not important enough. If they really cared about me, they would have time. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's what students hear. They need your time. But when I think about time, I think about racing. And, and I like to run races, uh, but my father-in-law will love this. Um, when in Charlotte, um, Charlotte is the capital of the world for NASCAR. Like, like I, I don't understand NASCAR. My father-in-law will watch it, and I'm like, why? Like, they just did another circle. Like, I I get that it's fast, and I get that there's, like, I probably couldn't do it, but I can take a circle. Like, I can't slam a ball in the basketball hoop because I can't jump, but, like, I can drive a circle. Like, I mean, like, I I don't get that, but there's one thing about about NASCAR that's always fascinated me, and that's the pit stop. Is that, man, they are efficient. Have you ever watched these things? They They refuel the car, they change the tires, they fix any adjustments that have to be made, and they are in and out in 12 to 15 seconds. Man, that is amazing. Because it's, here's what you need to do, fix it, boom, done, we're out. But if we're not careful, we will do the same thing with our students. We'll give them pit stop relationship rather than a deep relationship. We will give them the quick 12 to 15 seconds to fix this, do this, do that, bam, I'm out. But the problem is there's a whole lot of other things speaking into your students' lives. You know right now between social media, the internet, um, TV, and video games, you know how many hours per day your student on average spends on all that? Nine hours. 
Some of you are like, that's a little low. Well, you don't know my kid. He didn't sleep last night. Like, I, like, so, like, so nine hours is the average. Do you know the average amount of time spent with an intentional conversation with the student right now? Per day, 37 seconds. So you have nine hours of all these other things telling your student who they are, what is their value, if they're good enough, if they're bad enough, if they can do this, if they meet this standard. If they do. you got nine hours of that, and then you got 37 seconds over here to try to say you're valuable, you're worth it, you are called, you have a purpose, you are my child, I am proud of you, you are going to do great things in 37 seconds. And we wonder why students grow up with the expectation of everything else the world says and not the expectation that you believe for them. Because you spent, we spent 37 seconds here and they spent nine hours a day here. What they need is us to be patient and to be consistent with them. Here's, here's, the, here's the best way you can be consistent with them. You can find a way every single day to speak encouragement over your student. Every single day, you can find a way to speak encouragement to them. I worked at a camp and it was a, uh, it was a, a middle school camp. And I remember my first day of training, they said, whenever these students are here, your job is to say three positive things about them every single day. And you know what my response was? Honest, honest God, my response was, that's stupid. These kids are hood rats. They're middle schoolers. Like, God, they're doing dumb stuff. Like, how am I supposed to find three positive things to say about them? And here's what the guy, he looks right at me, and he was dead serious. He said, you may be the only adult in their life this year who says one positive thing about them. Why don't they deserve three from you every day that they're here in front of you? Are they not worth it? <laughs> well, okay, well, he said it too. You know, like, I mean, like, Wow. But it changed my perspective because there's a fact that you can buy them nice things, you can do nice things, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you speak things over them, that is what they will take with them. I have traveled for good or bad. You can tell me that this is a bad thing. I don't care. People ask me, why am I so confident about this stuff? Because my entire life, my dad spoke this over me. My entire life, my dad said I had a high purpose. I had a call that I was going to do great things. He told me that all the time. And then I grow up and people say, why are you so confident? Because my entire life, my dad spoke this over me. Why would I think anything else? You have an opportunity to speak life into your students every single day. And I know they're going to do something dumb. I know they're going to make a mistake. I know they don't deserve it. I know they said something mean to you. I know that they like broke the law. I mean, like, that happens a lot. Like, I mean, I'm sure they did a lot of terrible things. No one is denying that. But one day, whenever they walk away, what are they walking away with? Are they walking away with the encouragement that they heard from you every single time, even when they didn't deserve it? Or are they walking away with all the nice things you did just to get through the day? They need our patience. And the fourth thing that you can do is you can, you can teach them God. You can teach them what it means to follow God, not what it means to follow man. So right before they go into the promised land, the last thing they have to do is they have to cross this Jordan River. And so this river, it says that, Scripture says that it was at a flood stage. Like it, was, like, it was big. Like, it was at this flood stage, and um, before they go across, they don't know how they're going to get there. The leader comes up with this great idea. He says, here's what we're going to do, is there's this Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was a box, all right? Just, it was a box. And the box signified the presence of God. And so wherever the box was, wherever the Ark of the Covenant was, people viewed that as the presence of God. And so here's what he said. The Ark of the Covenant is going to go through the camp. And when it does, you get up and you follow it. And when you follow it, we will cross the river because it is going to show us a path because we have never been this way before. We have never been this way before, but if you follow the Ark of the Covenant, you will see the path. One final lesson that, hey, as we go into this promised land, our job is not to follow men. Our job is to follow God. 
and they did. They followed. The, to me, that's the craziest thing. It's not that the river actually dried up. The craziest thing to me is the fact that they actually followed this because it was the presence of God on their life. And I think for us, when I began to think about this and I began to study and I began to um, think about where I am on my own personal journey, I think we have to really ask ourselves, where are the people behind us following us to? Where are your kids following you to? Where are your students following to? Where are the people who look up to you? Where are they following you to? Because I have sweet girls and they love life. We genuinely prayed that they would just bring joy. I prayed that they would be healthy and I prayed that they would bring joy and I believe everywhere they go, they do. Here's how I know. Like 18 women just smiled because they saw baby shoes. Right? So my little girls, they love, they love everything. They get so excited. I say, hey, who wants to go outside? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, they, like their, their Nana and G-Paul walked in. Ooh, Nana, Nana. Like they get so excited about everything. And I love that. They even get excited about shoes. And I, I don't know why. But they love shoes. And I'm not a feet guy. So like I don't, I don't know where they got that from. But they love shoes. And so anytime they see shoes, they say, shoes, 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 they, they want you to put them on. They, they want to wear them. I want my shoes on. Daddy, put my shoes on. And, and another thing they do that I really love is, is, is they love daddy's shoes. Like they will literally go get my shoes and they say, daddy's shoes, daddy's shoes. And if I'm getting ready, if I'm um, taking the risk of getting, you know, fully um, prepared for the day in front of my children, the cutest thing that they will do is they will go and they will grab the first pair of shoes they see and they will bring them to me and say, daddy's shoes, because they know I need them. And they'll try to put them on me. And it's real cute for about five seconds. I'm like, give me that. I'm like, oh, yeah, like, I got it. All right, I got to go. Like, but it's awesome. And what they'll do, what I found is that if I walk into a room, they will follow me. But if I don't walk in the room, they're probably not going to follow me. And they even have this thing where if I walk down the hall, they walk down the hall. And if they get just a little bit too far ahead of me, especially Braley, she'll turn around and she'll say, come on, Daddy. Come on, Daddy. Like, she's not going anywhere without me. Because she's at a stage where she's following me wherever I lead her. And as I begin to think about this and pray about this, God asked me this question, where are they going to walk whenever I'm not there to lead them anymore? Because right now they can follow me everywhere, but one day they're going to walk to a land that they've never known before. One day they're going to walk into situations they've never had to experience. One day they're going to walk into things that I wish I could protect them from, I wish I could keep them from, and dear God, I'm going to do everything in my power too, but one day I just know they're going to walk into a land that I cannot be there to protect them. I'm not the one that they're going to be following. Who are they going to be following in that moment? Because if they're not following God, they will find someone. If they're not following God, they will find a man. They will find a leader. They will find somebody that they think they have to follow. And wherever that person leads, that's where they will go. And so I began to think about my own life and began to think about my own childhood. And there was a day wherever these, these were my shoes. There was a day where, when I wore shoes like this, and I remember following my dad. My dad's a big man, six foot four, 300 pounds. He really can swing a belt, but that's a different story. He's a really great man. And, you know, I'll be honest. I, there are some things that, you know, they, that weren't perfect. There are some things I wish, you know, had been different. But at the end of the day, here's the one thing I can tell you beyond the shadow of a doubt, is every time I followed my dad, he led me to God. There's not a single time in my life. I don't remember all the stuff he bought for me. I don't remember all the different things that they did for me. But I do remember the moments they led me to God. I remember growing up, and I remember my mom's Bible. 
Like I remember opening up her Bible and seeing notes. What she would do is she would label the day. She would say August 7th, 1996, and she would circle stuff. She would underline stuff. She would write notes on what God told her that day. If she heard a message, she would write who the speaker was. And it was just full of notes from years and years of studying God's word and learning and papers falling out. But this was so important to her. Like I remember her having that and it almost being sacred in our house. Like you can play with anything, but you don't mess with mom's Bible. I remember how important it was for us to go to church. Now we did something really weird in my church growing up. We had an altar call every week. And like, I I just got to be honest with you. I was at a point when I was a teenager where I just wasn't so sure about this whole God thing. Like I'd heard about it. Like he'd been real cool. I'd been taught a lot about him, but it just wasn't real to me. So you know what I did every single week? I went to the altar. I, I I don't know what they talked about. I don't think I really cared what they talked about. I just knew that I needed something from God. And so each and every single time I went down to the altar, do you know who was there? My dad. He prayed for me every single time. And here's here's the thing that's going to make you really uncomfortable, but I'm going to challenge you. And I can't explain all the theology. Scripture does say to, to lay hands on people. And I'm not even saying that that's what you have to do. But here's what I can tell you is that it wasn't a I will pray for you. It was I am praying for you. Literally thousands, like that is not an exaggeration, thousands of times in my life I heard my father pray for me. Six foot four, massive man with hands twice my size would put his hand on me and I would hear him praying to God on my behalf. I remember as a kid, I would get these really bad migraines. I mean like four or five times a week, it would shut me down. I would get sick. I was going to specialists. I was going to all these different places. Nobody could figure it out. I don't remember the pills they gave me. I don't remember how much money they spent taking me to all these specialists. I don't remember how many trips they took me on. I don't remember all of that stuff, but I remember the times that my dad would come in and he would pray that God would take this pain away from me. I remember the times that God would come in and say, God, I don't want my son to suffer anymore. I remember that. I remember being in high school, and you're gonna laugh at this. I thought that I had the love of my life. And we were going to be married. And I remember the day that I found out that she cheated on me with my best friend. And I thought, because I'm a teenager, my life is over and there's no hope for me. You know what that day, what my dad did? He pulled me aside. He said, you're going to be fine. Let me pray for you. And he prayed over me. When even if he thought it was dumb, he cared enough to speak words over me. That God would heal me. That God would bring me through it. That God would show me that this is not the end. That there's still more in my life to do. And that there's somebody else out there. And thank God he prayed it because I found her. But I remember that. And when I turned 18 years old, I went to college. To Lee University. Ten hours away from anything and everybody I ever knew. And I remember that last day that we were there, I was about to step into a new land that I had never been before. I remember that there was a, I, that there was a journey I was about to go on. That journey was going to lead me to my wife. It was going to lead me to North Carolina. It was going to lead me to two incredible girls. It was going to lead me to Ohio. It was going to lead me here to this day. And the last thing my father did before I stepped out into a new land, you know what he did for me? He prayed. He, we we could have went out and, and had to watch the football game. We could have gone out and had some laughs. We could have gone out and threw the football around. We could have done a whole bunch of stuff. The last thing, literally the last thing he did before he walked away from me was he put his hand on me and he said, God, please be with my son. He's about to step into a land that he's never known. And I'm not going to be here for him anymore. But I pray he follows you and I pray you protect him. I pray you guide him. And I pray that you were there with him every step of the way. You know what? God answered that prayer. So now here I am, an adult, and you know what really comes natural to me? Praying. You know, it's the craziest thing. I never get uncomfortable praying. 
It almost blows my mind. And people are like, oh, you want me to pray? Like, I'm not a professional prayer. You're a pastor. We pay you to pray. I can't pray. And I just don't get that. Because my entire life I watched it. So, you know, when my wife and I went through hard times, you know what we do? We pray. You know, whenever our girls were in the NICU and we were having just struggling, figuring things out, you know what we did every day? We prayed. You know, before we moved here and we didn't know what God had next for our future, you know what we did? We prayed. You know, my wife did right before I walked on the stage for the first service. She sent me a text and said, I just want you to know that I'm praying for you right now. Because we learned from an early age that there is something about following God. And when you learn to follow God as a student, one day when you step out into a land you've never known and you're not following your parents, you're not following your youth pastor, you're not following some leader, you're not following some adult, you're not following some friend. When it's just you on that day, who are they going to be following? My prayer is that they'll be following God. My prayer for these little girls is not that they grow up following me forever. God, I want it to last as long as possible. not going to lie. I will soak up every second. But one day, I really genuinely hope that they know how to follow God. So to recap, there is a fight that is going on right now. And I'm telling you that you are not hearing this on accident. It's because there is somebody in your life that God is calling you to reach out and make a difference to. So the best and first way you can do that is, man, you can just begin to coach them, put them in environments that they can make mistakes, put them in environments where they can learn and they can grow because you care about them and they can develop. Be honest with them. Don't let a student not see honesty. Don't let students not see that there is a reality that mistakes happen, but it's not the end. Let them see that from you. Let them see what it looks like to be patient. Let them see, like, man, how, how, what would the worst thing in the world be if they were just like, God, you were always so nice to me. You were always finding nice things about me. Like, would that be the worst thing in the world to 20 years from now, your 30-year-old, to be like, you were the nicest parent ever. You always, even when I did wrong, you found a way to encourage me. It would be a bad thing to do. And fourth, teach them to follow God. So the biggest challenge I'm going to give you today is I'm going to challenge you to pray over your student. I don't mean pray for them over there. I mean to pray over them. Let them hear your words to God on their behalf. So it's real simple. What would it look like if you pulled your son or your daughter or this student that God's laid on your heart or this friend and you pulled them aside and you said, can I just pray for you? And they heard you say, God, they are highly called. God, they are favored. God, I don't know the things they're going through, but I know you do. God, I know that you have a purpose for their life. And God, I just pray that you'd bless them. I pray that you would be with them. I pray that you would go before them. And I pray you would go behind them. You take 10 seconds out of your life and it will change their world. Because I'm 28 years old and I don't remember the things that happened in the moments. But I remember the things I walked away with. It was coaching. It was honesty. It was encouragement and patience. And it was teaching me how to follow God. So you have a connect card there. I want to give you an opportunity to take a few bold steps as we close this morning. What we do at the end of our service is we don't believe in just hearing a message. We believe in taking opportunities to apply the message to our life. And my prayer, genuinely, it's not just because I'm the student pastor. My prayer is that we will actively be a church that does this in our world with students that we encounter. So the first bold step you have an opportunity to take today is today I'm making Jesus my Lord and Savior. And if, if you've never done that before, you're new here and you don't know who this Jesus guy is that we're talking about, you can check that and we would love to follow up with you and talk through you that process with you. Or bold step B, today I'm choosing to be baptized. That's the step after you receive, you receive Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life. You do this public declaration and we celebrate it because it's amazing what God does in your life. You can check that and we'll follow up with you. Bold step C, I will have an honest conversation with a student in my life this week. 
This is hard. We don't use the word bold cautiously here, like bold step. I will have an honest conversation with a student in my life this week about how God has used my mistakes to help teach me, to train me, to equip me. Bold step D, I will try to find a way to encourage a student in my life every day this week. And I got to tell you, if you don't check this one, you just must not love students. Like, man, all you have to do is find a way to encourage a student every day this week. Just find a way, even when they do something dumb, encourage them. Let them know that you believe in them. Or bold step E, this week I will pray over a student in my life. I'm not going to pray for them. It may be weird, it may be awkward, but I will pray over a student in my life. They will hear me speaking to God on their behalf. I'm telling you, I'm telling you it'll be powerful. So as we get ready to close, our ushers are getting prepared. They're going to come take our offering up. And we get an opportunity to give to what God's doing here in this church. I want to let you guys know that whenever you give, you really are giving to something that actively pursues and invests in families. A couple of weeks ago, we had this student launch party here. And we did some fun stuff. We smashed a car. It's pretty awesome. Played some games. Did a lot of really fun stuff. We had a waffle bar. And everybody loves waffles. It was a really awesome time. We had over 100 students show up that night, and we had a gospel message. At the end of that gospel message, they had an opportunity that if they had never received Jesus as their Lord, they could do that, or if they just needed prayer, they could get prayer. You know, over 10 students that night walked up and went and received prayer. Some of them had literally never even heard about Jesus. Literally, they walked to a leader and said, I've never heard of this guy, but man, he sounds awesome. Like, would you tell me more about him? I would love to pray and receive him as my Lord. Some of them said, listen, I'm just struggling. Multiple students said, man, I have depression. I have suicidal thoughts. I have these things in my life. Like, would you pray for me? Because you give to this church, we have those opportunities. Because you give to this church, because you're generous, we get to minister to people of all ages, kids, students, and adults. So thank you for doing that. So here I want to pray for you, and we're going to go into a time of worship. So let's pray. God, thank you so much for who you are. God, thank you for being a great God. Thank you for caring for the least of these. Thank you for caring for me. Thank you for giving me parents and adults in my life who were able to coach me, who were able to lead me, who taught me how to follow you. God, I pray for every person in this room that, God, we would get in the fight. God, I pray that nobody would walk out of here and say, man, that was great for somebody else. I pray that everybody would walk out of here and say, who are the students, who are the young people that you put in my life that I should get involved in, that I should be a part of the fight? God, I pray that you would help us to be good coaches. God, as they get to a certain age, we need to be able to give them environments to grow in and learn. And I pray we would be honest. I pray that we'd be able to show the difference between a mistake and a failure. I pray we'd be patient and encouraging. And I pray we would show students how to follow you. God, I pray over the offering this morning, every cent that's given, I pray that we go to further your kingdom. I pray that children, that students, that young adults, that adults, that families would come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ because of what you are willing to do, because of what you were able to do through the generosity of these people. And God, we thank you for all things and give you glory and honor. Amen.